Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations Listener discretion is advised and now, Dealing In, Episode 9, Part 2. Hello and welcome to Dealing In. Dealing In is the feedback show for the works and worlds of J. Daniel Sawyer. That's me. And we're currently concentrating on the finale of the first book in the Antithesis progression, which is Predestination and Other Games of Chance. Joining me today are... Chris Lester of the Metamore City podcast, found at www.metamorecity.com. Miss Calendar of the Brass Needles podcast, BrassNeedles.com. This is Kitty Nikian, random voice for this and a few other podcasts. Okay, well, in order to break up the love fest, um, I have hate mail, or Yay! at least, or at least we think you're <laughs> kind of not as hot as you think you are, mail. Mildly mm. dislike mail. <laughs> well, it, uh, let's let's say fairly harsh critique mail. Ooh. But uh, there, there's a couple short love mails first, and let's uh, get those out of the way. Subject, poster. I'd love to grab one of those posters. Oh, yes. Thanks um, for the great run. Chris, I'm going to need to get your help with this because I'm going to set up a pre-order system. We are going to be doing full-size predestination posters. Wow. Signed by me mm. and as many of the cast members as I can get my hands on. Sweet. Sure. And um, we're going to be selling those for um, 12 bucks a piece. And if I can get 35 pre-orders, we will be able to do the whole lot. Cool. And uh, then uh, late, I'm going to hold back a few, because you can't actually get them in lots of 35. You can uh -huh. get them in lots of 50 only. Uh-huh. I'll hold back a few in order to um, give away as contest prizes later on um, with extra special things on them, like getting Danny Shade to sign them and mm. make, and numbering them and making them real serious collector's items and maybe framing them. Are you counting the cost of shipping the darn things? Because that I could believe, get expensive. I believe so. I'll have to double check. But, okay. But yeah. Because that was one I didn't quite account for okay, when I'll I did my Metamorphosity t-shirt pre-orders. Yes. Tentatively, we will need 35 people who are willing to pay between 12 and $13 um, for a poster to hang on your wall or keep in a tube for auctioning off later if when I ever hit it big, <laughs> and um, who like the cover art. And who doesn't? Yeah, that's true. Wow. <laughs> that is gorgeous cover just art. Just wait till book two. Yeah. You know who's modeling for book two? No. Paul. Oh, oh my. <gasps> Oh my gosh! Can I have a book two poster now? <laughs> I haven't taken the photos yet, but it's gonna be. Can I be there to watch the pictures get taken? Sure. <laughs> I'm sure you won't mind. But uh, yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep the theme going. But uh, so yeah, um, please. Uh, by the time this drops, hopefully I'll have a pre-order site set up, and there'll be a link in the show notes. So if you go to antithesis.jdsawyer.net and read the show notes and go to the link, you can pre-order your poster. Okay, um, brilliant finale, bravo, and love the music from Amy. Thank you, Amy. You rock. And the music is awesome. Yeah. Can't say enough about the music. Danny Shade fucking rocks. Here, here. 
the music oh, really God. is great. And as a musician, um, I really, really enjoyed it. And I thought cool. it was really well suited to the to the story overall. It was. Thank you. I was so happy when he said, yes, I'll compose. I'm interested to see what he does for Down from 10 to see if he can make it sound substantially different. Oh, from it's the very different. I wouldn't mind meeting him. Hint, 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 hint. I've got documented proof that you met him. You were just a little blitz at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've got pictures. Miss <laughs> Calendar doesn't remember things when there's red wine involved. <laughs> red, red wine. Okay, now that we've got the blues going, um, let's, uh, uh, if, if you'd be willing to do uh, Paul's email first. Okay. I asked Paul oh. particularly, because Paul Fisher, uh, the... Uh, head of the programming, uh, podcasting programming track at Balticon and host of the ADD cast. Mm-hmm. As well as the Balticon podcast. As well as the Balticon podcast. Was uh, talking on Twitter about having finished the book and um, having very mixed feelings about it. Because mm-hmm. um, there were part, there were some things he really, really liked and there were some things that really, really bothered him. Mm. Um, and, and, and things that he pegged as perhaps being the result of bad writing. So... Being a writer who wishes to improve their craft, I solicited further comment. And these are some of the things that he had to say about the weaknesses he saw in the story. Dan, Jim and his wife's marital problems seem really odd. I don't know this part of the human psyche well, but it seemed to me like the level of anger she's feeling is comparable to what happens when a couple loses a child. Yep, you got it in one, Paul. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote him back telling him this, but it was one of those things that's in the story and that um, a lot of listeners caught, but that several listeners missed because it's a background detail and doesn't become hugely important till book two. It seems a bit overblown on her side. There's no point where she begins to forgive and then he does something or a situation happens which ticks her off again. Actually, it just doesn't seem real to me. Actually, there is a situation where that happens when he's away at the cult. She decides to pull herself out of her depressive quagmire. She gets up. She decides to go to work. She um, gets ready to accept a job for the two of them. She's waiting for him to get home. And he comes home stoned off his ass and in the confusion – well, high on the drugs that they were uh, they were there. And in the confusion, they both try to embrace each other, but each interprets it as an attack because he he's high and she's – smaller than him and inter- and so there's scary things going on and that is the moment when it goes from salvageable to not salvageable so there is actually a moment that does that um i'm sorry you missed it but um i'm glad you pointed it out because if there really wasn't one of those kinds of moments there would need to be i also have a problem with the mass ejection drive system wouldn't there be a whole lot of highly kinetic debris flying around in space lanes there are always highly kinetic debris flying around in space lanes. They're called uh, micrometeorites, and there's, uh, yeah, the chances of getting hit by one are pretty small. Because space is because big. Because space is big. Really, and they really, are really small. Big. But there are a lot of them out there. Um, and the mass drivers are used only by ships that are doing express routes, ships that are under constant acceleration from one body to another. Um, particularly between a body in the Earth Luna system and Mars, Phobos, and Cassini, or not Cassini, but Phobos. Uh, uh, the, the Callisto out in the asteroid belt. Because that's a long haul if you're taking the Interplanetary Express. Now, the Interplanetary Express is a corridor of gravimetric, 
of gravimetrically easy traversals. So you can get a lot more bang for your buck, a lot more speed per kilogram of fuel taking the Interplanetary Express. Think of it as like following a river downhill. Yeah, it's like following a river downhill. You can look it up on Wikipedia and on NASA. They've got a lot of documentation on the Interplanetary Express. But, and that kind of uh, route is suitable for long-haul passenger ships, for um, long-haul cargo, for unmanned ships, because you can pretty much just fire and forget, and it doesn't cost a lot in terms of boost material. But if you're wanting to get from one body to another in a hurry, as you need ships that can be able to do that for medical emergencies, for people who can afford to pay, for uh, criminals on smuggling runs, like, you know, Cassie. Yeah. Um, and for for VIPs on missions of national security, such as Doug, you're going to be using something that can push constantly at one gravity or better. And mass driver propulsion is the only economic way to do that. And mass driver propulsion need not throw huge rocks out the back end. They can throw sand-sized particles out the back end so long as the stream is constant enough and at a high enough velocity that it will push them at the required um, at the required speed. Force equals mass times acceleration. Yep. So he continues, wouldn't ships be carving each other up with their exhaust? And wouldn't they have a hard time stocking excess mass on space stations to keep the ships fueled? It seems like an ion drive would do a better job and leave less junk around. Ion drives are extremely low thrust. Um, they are very high speed, but they're low thrust. Because very so little cute. mass. <laughs> <laughs> She's just turned red at the word thrust. Shush! <laughs> Uh, because they use extremely little mass. So ion drives are suitable for unmanned vehicles, um, for long-distance space probes, for um, other... Oh, he said probe. <laughs> After he said thrust, like, ten times. <laughs> for, for other vehicles like that where um, you don't need to stop the ship, or if you do, you don't need to get it up to speed in a hurry. It's not suitable for um, high-speed transport of massive cargoes and people. So, um, yes, you're absolutely right. It is not smart to be using mass drivers in established space lanes, but they don't. And the ion drive is one of the most efficient uh, space drives out there, and it is in heavy use in the universe, but not in any of the ships our people have been traveling on because we're dealing with people who are in a hurry. So next he brings up, regarding Percy slash Marion. It seems like people were reacting to her mutilation more than his supposed death. It was odd that people reacted the way they did. And Joss, the judge, and Cassie should have seen Shelley's caving to violence against his daughter as something manufactured. Okay. couple things. Um, first, Can I comment yeah. on that? Yes. This, that doesn't sound at all unusual to me. People do react. If, if you listen yeah. to the news, people react more to grotesque mutilation than to, murder. than to murder not only that but she is the basically like the kennedy yes and he's more like the sergeant driver right yeah. yeah and yeah he's 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 uh she's essentially a she's essentially royalty and he's the dude that you know the the foot soldier the marine that married in mm -hmm. um so his murder is 
a big deal, but not as big a deal as a deliberately political terrorist attack upon the family of the man who controls interplanetary policy in the Senate. Well, mutilation is a really big thing in yeah. Western culture as well. Yeah. It's it's a very big stigma. Yeah, mutilation is huge. And not just in Western culture. It's one of the reasons that it's such an effective punishment in um, – and has been throughout history um, in Middle Eastern culture and Roman culture. You know, you would get caught for stealing. They'd cut off your hand or you'd escape as a slave and they'd brand you. Mutilation is hugely upsetting to humans in a way that death isn't because we all do eventually die. Mm -hmm. But an attack – so an attack on him, even if it's politically motivated, isn't the same kind of political statement that – an attack on her is now as far as why he changes his policy and no one else suspects something is up um doug does kind of wonder if something is up but a politician in that position doesn't actually have a choice because as far as the press is concerned and everyone who's not in on the conspiracy Bill Shelley's just been uh, Bill Shelley's family has just and and several other families which we hear about in passing have just been the victims of terrorist terrorists attacking the US in order to force a change in policy that change being to free uh, to accelerate the process of independence rather than dithering around and moving slowly you don't cave in to the demands of terrorists that's the basic foreign policy doctrine of the 21st century. It was the basic foreign policy doctrine of the 20th century. And it's the equivalent of you don't, play, you don't pay a blackmailer because the price has no ceiling. Mm -hmm. If you pay it once, then they will assume you keep paying it. And if, you don't like, if they don't like what you do next time, they will attack again. So as far as the public is concerned, Bill was backed into a corner and he could not do what the terrorists asked him to do. Now, he could have stood pat and say, we won't change our policy at all. Or he could have reacted and said, I was wrong. I'm changing my policy to oppose the terrorists. And of course, opposing the terrorists is more press time and is a more predictable move for a politician who's got his eyes eventually on the White House mm -hmm. because he wants to be seen as tough on terrorism. Mm -hmm. And even someone like Doug, who knows him very well, who's an old friend, who knows that his eventual goal is the liberation of the colonies, is not going to doubt that that kind of trauma could poison him against that. Mm -hmm. So Paul continues with, That said, I have generally been riveted by the story. There is some awesome storytelling in there. The whole poker match was excellently done. The prehistory of Joss and Mondu was similarly excellent. So were many other parts. You asked for my feedback on the parts I had problems with. Yes, I did. So that was the main focus of this email. I also hope you'll be able to... Oh, did you want to take a... Yeah, I was just going to say thank you very much for sending it in. I really appreciate it. I also hope you'll be able to make it to Balticon next year. Absolutely. I don't know. Is it <laughs> it's an opposite Baycon again? It is. It's always opposite Baycon. Curse you. Okay. So next year I'm going... I'm going to Baycon this year because it's really my last year as a fan, if unless my career stagnates right away. So I'm going to Balticon next year. We'll miss you at Bacon. I'll miss you I'll guys him, too. I'll make him alternate years. I won't let him go just to Bacon. Yay! Yeah, I could, I could All the Balticon people could just come to Bacon and invade. You could come to Balticon with me if you want, just for the year. Oh, yeah? yeah? Yeah. Do we still have the same kind of costumes? 
Oh yeah, Baltica. I got might lots be costuming. You know, I am looking for the gold bikini Leia style. I would totally mm. lead you around on a leash on that. <laughs> I have to figure out what kind of leash to get. Does that make you Java? Han. See, this is why no one wants to leave. No one wants to hold the leash because it means they're Java. I'd be Han, or I'd dress as one of the bounty hunters that was assisting Java. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I know that that JC Hutchins has kind of got the Hutch, the Java the Hutch persona. Man. Java the Hutch. <laughs> <Bushuda>. <laughs> oh no, no longo. Hutchins no para. <laughs> On a Luongo Sawyer. Um, so he just ends his email with, I also hope you'll be able to make it to Balticon next year. We have a hell of a new media get-together with lots of podcasters. You can even write it off on your taxes if you give a lecture teaching some audio techniques. Definitely. Think about it. So I wrote back to Paul. Um, the email was actually quite a bit longer than that. Um, those are just the highlights that might be interesting to other people. But one of the things he had commented in passing on that we didn't read here was a question about the um, what he saw as the unnecessarily complex cover-up of Scott Walter's body rather than burning it, dumping it in a vat of acid or um, – or dropping it in space or something else. And I explained that <laughs> he needed to be able to cover up the fact that Walters died when he did. He needed mm. Walters to die in what looked like a suicide bombing so that Percy would be completely out of the picture suspicion-wise. And mm. they would think that the person who had been on Nineveh really had been Scott Walters. Mm. So he replied, there's a little more there. Or there should be. Okay, he says, this is a stretch for me, a big one. Human beings have been very efficient at getting rid of the remains of their fellow humans for millennia. With organized crime and other nasty people moving into space, there should be ways of completely destroying a body and all the DNA in it. Certainly someone would come up with a mold or bacteria which could consume an entire human body in short order and leave no DNA evidence behind. There, um, there are a couple of problems with that, one of them being that you're in a space station. Uh, even though it's on a planet. You're in a mm. space station where the uh, atmosphere is controlled. Whether you're talking about a lie bath, which is what organized crime used a lot in the 20th century, or an engineered um, bacteria that will eat something very quickly, you're still talking about a few, at least a few hours of work to break down something the size of a human corpse. At least. And you have to deal with the waste products of those organisms or that chemical reaction. Yeah. In an environment where oxygen is life and all the air is manufactured and recycled, you're going to have atmosphere sensors all over the place. And so a sudden drop in C or a sudden rise in O2 consumption mm -hmm. from all those bacteria is going to be noted. Or an O2 outgassing. Any of the waste gases that come off that reaction is going to set off an alarm. Mm -hmm. Add that to the fact that on this, in this kind of environment, you're not going to have easy access to um, things like sulfuric acid or other large-scale chemical things. Mm -hmm. As far as dumping the body... In waste disposal, which was uh, which is something he had suggested in the course of our email conversation. In this in, in this kind of environment, your food, your waste, everything is recycled, and the mass is tracked. So if an extra hundred or if an extra hundred kilograms of someone shows up somewhere along the line, they're gonna find it. Now, it could be that he'll be broken down so much by that point that you won't get any identifiable DNA out of it. But it's not likely. They'll probably discover the body early enough in the process that they can recover some of that. Mm -hmm. Even if they don't, the fact remains that Percy needs Scott Walter's body to be found in order for Percy's cover to be secure. 
Mm -hmm. And Scott Walters dying in a suicide bombing like he does means he's going to be found. He's going to be blamed for the crimes that Percy committed as Scott Walters. Mm -hmm. And the fingerprints of the United States government are not going to appear on the operation. Mm -hmm. Um, He had a couple other objections here. Yep. Criminals will always keep up with forensics and so will governments. Percy would be able to get the good stuff from the senator. He could keep a couple of small samples to be found after the suicide bomb went off. The problem is C4 doesn't vaporize that much flesh. And he's going to need enough mass of remains to be found for it to be credible. And he's going to need that mass to match Scott Walters' DNA because they will check. It's a crime scene. Um, so organized crime does think of ways to keep ahead. And in fact, this is, this went off this way because this was the only way I could find for a plausible body disposal that would serve the ends of the character and the plot that, um, would actually work in this environment. Organized crime will keep ahead or keep pace to the extent that the laws of chemistry, physics, and biology make possible. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you have to deal with the fact that everything that lives has a metabolism, leaves waste, and is traceable. Mm -hmm. Also, bacteria tend to snarf up stray bits of DNA from all over the place and incorporate it into their, their own genetic structure. So... It's quite possible if you find a pile of bacterial sludge and you start analyzing the DNA in there, you will find enough pieces of Scott Walters Mm, that you might be able to identify him. Just in the waste products. Mm -hmm. And he does continue for a little bit. Yep. If I remember correctly, Percy says or thinks that nothing will be left of Walters after the bomb. That's how it struck me anyway. Uh, He actually says nothing was left of Scott Walters but little icy bits falling all over the crater floor. So how can it be a suicide bomb if there's nothing left of the bomber to ID? Um, the fact that there are those little icy bits all over the crater floor is actually part of the plan. Oh, very clever. Also, if the forensics are so advanced and they find even little bits of Walters, they should be able to not only ID the body as you plan, but also know that he had been dead for a long time before the bomb went off. I mean, if they're that good, then they're that good, period. They are that good, but... But uh, the decomposition of a body happens for one reason only. It's because the bacteria in the gut digest the body. They normally digest your food. When you die, they start digesting you. It's the circle of life. What happened if you listen back to the scene where Percy finds the climate-controlled bag that Scott Walters is in? What Percy has done is keep Scott Walters at 1 degree Celsius, or approximately 35 degrees Fahrenheit. Just warm enough that ice crystals won't form in the cells and rupture them. And cold enough that almost all metabolic activity will have ceased in the in this... Um, the, the same reason that food doesn't rot when you put it in your fridge. Mm-hmm. You put food in a really cold fridge, it lasts for longer. Same thing. The Scott Walters meat is being preserved. <laughs> the, Scott Walters meat is being preserved because the bacteria, which would normally digest him after he died, have their metabolic processes slowed almost to the point of stopping mm-hmm. by the climate-controlled bag. The other things that identify the time of death are the body te- body core temperature, which isn't an issue if your body has been blasted to smithereens mm-hmm. by an extremely hot explosion mm-hmm. and then left to sit in a vacuum. And um, 
the extent and progression of rigor mortis, which is, again, not something you can ascertain if the body has been blasted to smithereens. Mm -hmm. So the only remaining way to determine time of death is the extent to which the tissue itself has decayed. And by refrigerating the corpse... Scott, he screws up the timeline. He screws up the timeline enough that mm-hmm. um, by the time they get out there, the flesh will appear to be plausibly fresh. And also there's the fact that the human mind is naturally going to go connect, for the, go for the simplest explanation. And the simplest explanation is going to be that he blew himself up with a bomb. Yep. You know, people are not that paranoid, generally speaking, that they're going to second guess something that is so bleedingly obvious. Yes. As long as the base, as long as the cursory investigation, basically checking the decomposition level of the flesh, matches up, mm-hmm. they've got dude in the airlock. They've got an explosion in the same airlock. They've got dude's remains splattered everywhere. Mm-hmm. As long as the decomposition rate matches up, they're not going to question it because it's exactly what they'd expect to find. The same, it's it it works. This kind of uh, cover up operation works the same way that stage magic does. You don't have to fool everything. All you have to do is insert enough doubt and distraction that the human brain will make the most obvious connection, and then you just make sure that the most obvious connection is not the correct one. Right. So uh, thank you very much for the email, Paul. I really appreciated it, and it's good to be called on stuff that seems not to be working. Uh, Several of your comments have shown me that there are a couple of places where, although the information is present, I don't draw quite enough attention to it, and I'm going to go fix that. And uh, the other critical email we got was from Michael Spence, and again, this was actively solicited by me. Hi, Dan, Kitty, Chris, and anyone else who's been unfortunate enough to get sucked into this madhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, I would know who that would be. Do you feel unfortunate? No, I mean, I know it's late, but, you know. Yeah, we're totally going to be paying for this at work tomorrow. Yeah, but I don't care. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm having too much fun to care. I haven't had enough sleep this weekend, so tonight's mm-hmm. not going to be, in, uh, not any, gonna be different. any different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, I don't really need to be awake to work, do I? Nah, not with your job. More not unless you have to. Not unless you have to harass the FBI or something. Well, that's every mm-hmm. day. That's That's the perk. <laughs> <laughs> So, you want me to send feedback so that you can make fun of me on the show, eh? We would <laughs> never do that. You were a cast member, dude. You rock. You were the security guy that Joss Kyle insulted. We already insulted you on the show. <laughs> In that case, <laughs> at least let Chris be the one to read this so that I can hear what it sounds like. <laughs> I'm still eagerly waiting to read a story of his. Hear that, Chris? So it seems only fair. Michael, I'm going to work on those edits this summer. I promise. I, what's what's this from? He's uh, he's playing um, Isaac in Whispers in the Woods. Ooh, fun. That's going to be a good story when it's finished. First, Dan, although I could say it's been a wild ride and you've done a superb job of production, many others have already told you that by now. So I guess you're entitled to an equivalent of Mr. Limbaugh's dittos. Ah, well, thank you, but, ah, Rush, ah, (laughs) flashbacks. Me too. (laughs) You've asked for feedback regarding predestination, and the main reason I'm willing to be negative here is that I'm sure you guys have answers, which I'm eager to hear. Indeed we do. Number one, antithesis I get, no problem. There's a status quo, thesis. 
a, if not the, <laughs> rebellion antithesis, and what emerges after the moon dust settles and the blood rinses away, synthesis. Check. He, yep, Hegelian progression. Yeah, he got it. <laughs> but Give where... Woo! Ding! Oh. But where in the novel is there anything referring to predestination? I'm still looking. Unless you're saying the Luna Rebellion was inevitable, written in the stars, etc., etc. We're still going to sick the Apostle Paul and John Calvin on your tuckets. <laughs> oh, snap. I could take him. <laughs> no, um, fate and destiny are implicit, very rarely explicit themes running through the whole story everybody is following paths that they feel like they have to follow whether they want to or not they're being pushed by the universe to do things and they're struggling with the fact that they feel like they have no choice in this maze they're being driven down and the truth is we always have a choice it's just not always the choice choices we want, we want. <laughs> and um so fate plays uh, the idea of fate and feeling trapped by fate and feeling trapped by the universe conspiring against you is a heavy theme of the book, as is the main characters we have who are all in the business of either engineering the fate of others mm. or cheating <laughs> the engineering of their fates that is being done to them. Yeah. <laughs> and in some cases, both. Yep. Number two. About those buckets of misery. Yes, Michael called in earlier and said, there are so many buckets of misery in this book that watching Battlestar Galactica, I sometimes think, wow, Dan Sawyer could have written this. Well, this could almost be a <laughs> Dan Sawyer. almost be a Dan Sawyer book. Oh, snap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, somewhere along the line, they took a left turn into rage, and there's certainly enough of that. As you've said, such a development is to be expected when one combines passion with sorrow. So I guess we can say, as they do in the movies and now in comics, raise the Red Lantern! <laughs> well, there's some rage. Allie definitely turned into rage. Yeah, that's, that was, that's the end point of her defense mechanism that has now played itself out, and she's got to find something else. Yeah. Um, Joss, I think, turned much more to tragedy. Yeah. The inevitability of the noose closing around him didn't make him angry. Nope. It made him very sad because he was giving up what had become home. He was giving up his friends, his employees, his business. He was giving up his friendship with Mondu, which obviously meant quite a great deal to him. Yeah. And he was giving up, as far as he can see, his relationship with Cassie. Mm-hmm. Which has come to mean a lot more to him than he ever wanted it to. <laughs> So with Joss, it's much more, at least from this author's uh, admittedly biased point of view, yeah. um, the, the end of the book is much more tragic than rageful. Mm -hmm. um, everyone winds up in a position where no one has what they wanted. Mm -hmm. But in a very perverse way, everyone has at least a piece of what they've been needing in order to pull themselves out of the hell they've been walking through. Mm-hmm. Now, whether they can do it or not is the, question. is the question of free will. Number three, as I look back on predestination and anticipate free will, here's the principal flaw I'd point out for possible future treatment. Although, yes, I was bowled over by the sheer volume of emotional turmoil in predestination, I think my biggest problem with the story is that in it, tension and paranoia are not only nearly universal, 
but they're almost completely unrelieved. I mean, nonstop, relentless, no breaks. I got to admit that this one, um, this one really surprised me. Um, I wrote back to him. Um, asking him if he could clarify, I said, looking over the manuscript, I'm finding that there's a dependable stop and rest and revel in something beautiful or kind or occasionally funny, at least every 20 pages and sometimes more often. Allie's shower, the swimming scene at the reservoir, Joss's many moments remembering home or reveling in the bar or sizing up fugitive, Doug and Jade's scenes together, Volish's scene on the dock or the funeral service. The scenes in the cathedral, the first scene where Jim buys the spices, most of the scene dealing with Jim and the cult, Jim's moment of reverie and homesickness overlooking the green belt on Nineveh, Cassie's scenes of contemplation between planets, the scenes with Brittany, or, well, half of them, because <laughs> yeah. the other half she's uh, fighting Xyler mm. or um, musing about her rather colorful history, which isn't altogether uplifting. And a goodly number of other scenes of genuine human connection, restful moments, and aesthetic beauty, none of which counts any of the sexual scenes or the scenes dwelling on the marvels of the world itself or that delve into deep history, of which there are several on each score. Because of this, I'm wondering where the sense of unrelenting, un, uh, unrelenting universal tension and paranoia comes from for you. Perhaps I did too well a job at cutting each episode on a cliffhanger, which artificially amplified the tension. Would love to hear your thoughts and uh, on this for my own personal benefit, as it might help me as I prep for cutting the episodes up for free will. He said, thank you. I appreciate your wanting to follow up my critique, such as it is. For what it's worth, that's one reason why I want to keep up with your work particularly, despite the reservations I wrote up. You're listening to me? Very well, I jolly well want to return the favor. And I can see how you guys might be thinking, wait a minute, did he hear the same book you wrote, or was he really listening? For starters, I cannot rule out the latter accusation. My listening took place largely during my drive to and from the state prison some 25 miles away where I would be teaching classes. Reason, mostly unoccupied highway, so I could listen in stereo to catch all the sound. And I could very cool. easily have glossed over something important. I know. They're lit classes, and when studying literature, you must pay attention. So where I didn't, may a maxima culpa. No problem. But day even so. <laughs> <laughs> the fancy way of saying my bad. Yeah, oh no, I know. <laughs> and yes, I did enjoy the moments, such as Jim's exploration of the cult on Mars. I'm glad they're coming back, by the way. I'm oh, waiting. yes. I'm waiting to see how they contribute to the history that unfolds. Oh, I can't wait till you find out. And back to the bouncing. Oh, yes. <laughs> and the Greenbelt meditations. And the cathedral scenes. Oh, yeah. They kicked Major League Keister. Perhaps it's the strength and intensity of the confrontations and the dismayed, damn, he sold me out decisions that have stamped them into my memory and probably overpowered what otherwise would have been redeeming moments. Mm. Another listening is most definitely in order. Okay, yeah. Pause. He goes on to point out many other moments slash scenes that he found restful and beautiful. Yeah. Um yeah. Uh well and, and I did uh, I did direct there there may be something in the uh, in the presentation there as well, because I did as Ms. Callender will uh will attest to, <laughs> I did uh, direct the actors to really chew the scenery when there was the latitude for it in the story. Yeah, I'll never forget his directions on how to grunt. 
Yes, in pain. Especially when he would demonstrate for me, which was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> you ever had Dan next to me like, no, it's more like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to hear some of that on the blooper reel. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Hey. All the significant characters who've had much development, Jade and Brittany are off to the side, and Douglas has had much told but little shown about him, live in a miasma of mistrust, ready to the drop of a bullet to assume that everyone they've dealt with is selling them out. You can tell this guy's a writer. That's just a fucking gorgeous sentence right there. <laughs> it really is. It is. <laughs> you haven't always shown us that they have any reason for thinking so. You've just relayed their convictions to us, and they're ironclad. There's no consideration of possible alternatives. Cassie is sure Joss has betrayed her. Joss is convinced Cassie has done likewise to him. And Allie believes everyone is ready to hand her over on a silver platter. It's true. <laughs> uh, so I, um, I replied to him saying, um, as to the miasma of mistrust, that's actually one of the main issues I explored in the book. All human relationships run on trust, and yet the practice of espionage and the business of secrets is predicated upon the notion that nobody can be trusted. And indeed, most of our characters have so much to lose that they would be fools to trust rashly. Mm -hmm. And we start this story with a cast of characters whose trust has been profoundly betrayed in the case of our good guys. Mm -hmm. In the case of our bad guys, ironically, it hasn't. Yeah. Um, or, or who are operating in the kinds of jobs where no matter how much you trust someone, you check their story. In Joss and Cassie's relationship, there's this delicate dance where when each thinks for very good reasons that the other has been double dealing them, their first action is to talk to the other party. It's only when the other party's story fails to check out against the evidence that they then begin to get really cagey. Hmm. Throughout the book, the thing they each value most about each other is that they trust each other in a way that is rare. They know where they stand with one another, both personally and in their priority structures. They trust each other enough that Joss believes Cassie's frankly unbelievable, though true, story about why she set him up to meet Reeves and Phalanx. And this profound, if odd, trust between them is why, even at the end, Cassie gives Joss just enough room to escape by hiding the facts about Phalanx, Joss's personal arsenal, and even the financial evidence she discovered in Scott Walter's apartment, not to mention that she lets him shoot her in order to escape, rather than shooting him as she would have done if she wanted to keep him around. Mm. In, e in each case throughout the book, except for Percy's determination to revenge himself upon Bill at the end, once he realizes that the unquestioning trust he placed in the man has been betrayed, the first reaction of someone who thinks they've been played is to confront the person they think has dealt falsely with them. That confrontation can be cordial, as it was when Cassie met Joss in Phalanx, or it can be unpleasant, as it was when Cassie confronted Jade. But in each case, they do talk out their suspicions rather than acting upon them precipitously. It may not quite be the benefit of the doubt, but it is the next best thing. No one talks to anyone to find out anything that might disprove their assumptions, leaving us with the biggest, smelliest heap of unnecessary confusion since I Love Lucy. <laughs> now, I realize that in a world where everyone has so much to lose, the benefit of the doubt is granted at one's peril. But geez whiz, man, how can people live in such a state for long without cardiac events right and left? <laughs> okay, and I actually... Um... So that should have been part of your mm -hmm. your response. Okay. And so then 
Um, by, oh, oh, and uh, okay, so I've got a couple more responses to those little bits, and then you can read response to response. Um, I said, if you can point me towards some unnecessary confusion, please do. I worked very hard to make sure all the confusion was necessary. <laughs> um, I think that unnecessary confusion in this kind of a story is a harbinger of a failure on the part of the author. And so if any of you listeners find unnecessary confusion, please point it out because it's important to me to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in response to the um, – the G whiz man. Um, how how do people live this way without uh, having cardiac events right and left? <laughs> I wrote back, not well, as you can see. <laughs> Which is why the disaster at the end of Predestination has this strange, hopeful edge on it. The disaster played out like it did because Cass- Cassie actually picked a side. Because Allie has what she thinks she wants, an escape from her marriage with Jim, and an opportunity to finally bring Joss in if she can turn the tables on him. Most of the other characters are also in the situation of having what they need, though perhaps not what they want, to extricate themselves from the hell they've been walking through. Mm-hmm. So you want me to read his response? In response, yeah. I was intrigued by your suggestion that something in the tone slash presentation of the story stuck harder than the facts of the story. You know, I think that may be it. Furthermore, part of what I'm reacting to is the nature of espionage slash skullduggery on someone Mm. else's behalf. (laughs) Yeah. When I say talk things out, I mean I can envision a scene in which Joss and Cassie each say something along the lines of, okay, here's what I'm hearing you say. The problem is that when this occurred, I was in the middle of doing blank, and I observed that blank. Now that being the case, and since I really want to understand what you're thinking and saying, please help me to see where I'm wrong. Wussy, eh? Well, Mm. so be it. No, not wussy at all. Very vulnerable, though. Vulnerable and healthy, and unfortunately not something that these characters can afford at this point. And not terribly common in human relations, either. Right. It takes a great deal of courage, maturity, and a specific kind of trust to be able to do that. My point here is that I can also see that this kind of conversation is precisely not one that either Joss or Cassie can afford to have. Exactly. If they did, it would mean a kind of commitment to each other that, at the moment, neither wants, and that would hinder each from functioning as the kind of spy that each has to be. Yep. Furthermore, it would compromise not only each of them, but what each feels he slash she must protect. Each one must keep the other at arm's length, at least. And that, unfortunately, means not being able to hear the whole truth from the other's lips. Yep. But having to make assumptions and come to conclusions that could well be false. Thus leading to the I Love Lucy moments. So perhaps (laughs) I also have to learn that don't ever trust me can mean not only because I intend to stab you in the back the first chance I get, which is what I hear, but alternately... Because your effectiveness is part of who you are, and that's important to me, so I won't let you do anything to compromise it. Incidentally, that, to me, would be one likable trait. That actually is very close to what's going on there. In that Mm -hmm. scene, they both do trust each other profoundly. They both want to trust each other. But there's something about shared knowledge that creates an obligation that neither one of them can afford and that neither one of them wants to impose upon the other. Mm -hmm. So by saying, don't trust me, Cassie is giving Joss permission to run. Mm -hmm. And by saying that she can't trust him, Joss is giving her permission to do what she she thinks she has to do. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately what's at stake here is their nascent revolution. And it's something that both of them value more highly than their, their own, own skins. skins. And um, 
that's so that's it's, it's a strange kind of integrity and respect at play there. I like that. I think that's part of the reason you you articulated it just now much better than I ever could. But I think that that was the reason why the scene worked so well for me. Thank you. And that's the other half of the problem. Not only do we do they experience this paranoia and this tension without a break, so do we. I finally understand, through experience, why comic relief was invented. Everything I said before about your world-building skill is still true. And yes, those little unexpected throwaway details about how it feels to live in a non-terrestrial environment are gems, making it all work. But your world seems to be one I'd reluctant to visit, certain I wouldn't last five minutes. Not with either the Green Lady Squadron or Shelley's goons out to get me. <laughs> There'd simply be no time to breathe. Yeah, most most people wouldn't. But I, I, uh, yes, it, it's such a hard thing because so many people loved the the those hard ass cliffhangers at the end of every episode. Uh huh. And I made sure to pack the quiet moments into Act Two of every episode. And yep. if most episodes had three scenes, and the mm-hmm. scene in the middle was the quiescent one. So that we start off with a bang and we end with a bang Mm -hmm. and we've got the rest in the middle. Um, It definitely wasn't intended to exhaust the audience, but Michael's one of three people I've heard that, that the pace of the, the the pace of the suspense and the waiting a week between just killed him. Really? And I'm really sorry about that. Um, I think it worked brilliantly myself. But yeah, and a lot of people did. And so, you know, that's one of those things. It's hard to know what to do with that because I think his gripe is legitimate, but figuring out how much to alter my strategy based on it when it's working well for so much of the audience, that's a lot harder. But uh, thanks for voicing it in any case. Some of that is a genre convention. That's true. And um, one thing that that broke something like that up. Um, I'm thinking back to the third and fourth seasons of B5, Mm. which was um, a very, very dramatic, intense, intense tense arc. um, Very similar. And most of, most of the episodes followed that type of, type of an arc. Mm -hmm. And what he did to break that up is every once in a while, he would have, have a, a softer story. Mm hmm. Um, even during during the tensor season you can do that and not break up your pattern Mm -hmm. have most of your episodes end with that Mm. tense dramatic um but have but have a full episode of downtime occasionally that kind of thing it's an interesting idea i may play with that free will will have the flexibility to do that at least during one particular stretch of the story but in other ways, free will is going to be much more intense because where this book took place over the course of almost two years, free will takes place over the course of about 16 weeks. Okay. <laughs> Point four. This last one may just be my own quirk, I realize, but I want there to be at least one person in the story who I know and like. I'm glad you've explained that Douglas Reeves is the hero of Antithesis. And that was brilliant, by the way. As, as Chris, I just have to say, sticking that little detail into the credits was uh-huh. like, oh, man, that's going to really screw with people's heads. <laughs> it's true, though. Mm-hmm. You, you, well, you've seen the whole arc. Right, so, you know. so I know why. <laughs> and I intend to continue paying attention to him. But vis-a-vis Joss, Cassie, the Hartmans, and Percy, I don't really know them. I know about them and the parts that he's playing, but we haven't learned much about him personally yet. 
which is really interesting because we had we we did have the scenes with him early where we were in his head mm. to establish him. Um, but I actually did intentionally stay out of his head after that point mm. because in order to understand how things fall out, we need to understand how other people see him. Right, and than, everyone else sees him as this manipulative demon. Right, whereas the truth is. He's probably that he's the probably most heroic character, the most in, the heroic character in, in the whole uh, story. <laughs> but I guess I found I found it interesting that it played that way, that he was told more than shown. Mm. Because looking at him from the outside, all we actually see are his actions mm. and other people editorializing on them. Right. So it's, it's almost as if he's completely shown and... To not told at all, but because it's such a stark thing, it plays the other way around. And because he's being told, it's like the other characters are telling about him because mm -hmm. of their perceptions of him, and everything they're telling about him is completely distorted and inaccurate. Yes, and we don't know. And, and we know by this point that they're all unreliable narrators, mm -hmm. and they are all unreliable narrators, which. I got to admit, I'm surprised didn't drive more people crazy because <laughs> it's because because we're so used to it. I think in this day and age, mm -hmm. there is no truly unbiased narrator mm -hmm. in any fiction. I mean, even in every author leaves their stamp and their biases. Oh, and I think absolutely. we're just used to it by now. We see it all over our news. Yeah. And the evolution I, of fiction in the last hundred years yeah, has tended more towards limited tended, perspective right, it's, characters it's tended more towards point. limited perspective but there is a difference between a limited perspective character and an unreliable narrator right mm -hmm. because the unreliable narrator is either so screwed up or so malicious or um their perspective is so skewed mm -hmm. that you can't trust that anything they're telling you is right comports with reality mm -hmm. and See, so the things that you do all of your character, your your reporting of the actual events mm -hmm. is objective and and accurate, which is different from the classic unreliable right, narrator which will lie who, to you about what happened. Right. But yeah, my my idea in the last, particularly the last five episodes, was to create a kind of narrative interferometer. You know what an interferometer is? I almost remember what that. Uh, that's means. a that's a telescope, uh, like a radio telescope, that takes samples of the of the sky in different places and then interpolates them together in a computer so that by using the interference patterns, you can get a much bigger picture than you could just by having um, a single big dish gotcha. because dishes that big are too big, too, too expensive. To That's build. one big dish. Yeah. <laughs> you are one tasty dish. Um, but uh, so the idea in the last several episodes there was to create a narrative interferometer around Doug so that we see him through these different perspectives and we know enough about him from before to divine what his intentions are likely to be based on the way that these characters we know really well are misinterpreting them. Mm. Which I admit demands a lot of the reader, but that's that's one of the reasons for that final scene where Doug finally states his agenda on the table, uh -huh. so that at that point the readers get a payoff. They're not left hanging wondering if they're right. Right. You get to see what he's up to, or at mm -hmm. least what he's willing to say that he's up to. Right, and he's telling the truth there. Mm -hmm. um, he's not lying. Did then and. That that was the other reason that I had him deal with Jim the way he did in that final scene. So I wanted to show, before he laid his agenda on the table, I wanted to show that 
he may manipulate and cajole people and maneuver circumstances so that people won't have a choice. But in the end, he doesn't lie about his agenda, and he does actually give them the choice. Crappy choice, though, it may be. But he didn't engineer that choice. Right. That really was the choice before Jim. Mm -hmm. And Doug didn't bullshit about it. Yeah. So that's it. I'll be waiting for free will, and I'm interested to see what Down From Ten is like. And see we shall. <laughs> well, Down From Ten is populated by... Mostly by people who are fairly lighthearted and very likable. So <laughs> Wait, this isn't a book by Dan Sawyer. It really is. <laughs> Except for my character. My character's an ass. Well, there, there, there are assholey moments for all the characters. They're not, like, unflawed. Well, no, no. one's perfect. Right, no. no one's perfect. But, um, but it is, you know, like T. Morris said in The Grill, it's Clue meets The Shining. <laughs> or as I or as I said to him that made him turn that back, it's Douglas Adams rewriting The Shining as a sex comedy. <laughs> um, oh, ouch. <laughs> that's what he said. That was my brain. <laughs> oh, After 1 a.m., those things are too hard to think about. <laughs> but uh, it's much more lighthearted. There's a lot of big laughs, and there's a lot of uh, just a lot of fun stuff. Um, in the midst of all the other kinds of stuff I usually like to play with. So if you're looking for more likable people, Down From Ten is definitely your book. Mm -hmm. um, because while the characters in Predestination are all in some sense lovable, and many of them are pitiable, it's true. That it, it, different people seem to like different ones depending on their own psychology. Some of them really like Percy. God knows why. Ah! Uh, <laughs> Um, some of them really like Joss. Some of them really like Cassie. Everybody likes Volish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and some people really like uh, like Jade. Um, everyone really likes Allie until she goes off the rails and then they hate her. Right. Um, so uh, well, it just... It's not your fault, huh? Yeah. No, no, I was just thinking, <laughs> this will be the one time I get to play a character people hate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you should enjoy it while I've got it. I always have to play some sort of sweet little innocent person. Uh, your character okay. in Down from Ten is sweet, but she's not um, naive, innocent, or stupid. And the character you will be playing in Things Unseen, which is the centerpiece novel of Metamore City Season 2, um. is a Paris Hilton-style <laughs> dilettante. What? <laughs> what? That would explain a lot of what she's been doing to the microphone. <laughs> She is a. She is. Her, this is a family podcast, not a family making podcast. This is not a family <laughs> podcast. She is a member of the hedonist cult. She is a. Uh, her half brother is a incubus who is kicked out of the family. I just want to know how you can at all relate me to Paris Hilton. <laughs> just in the sense that she is wild, crazy, and constantly in front of the paparazzi, generating news because she is. So she she so totally is dedicated to her own hedonistic pursuits. I think it's called she, acting. I was here. just thinking, yeah. keep digging. <laughs> I'm just saying that that's what her character is. I'm not saying that that's who you are, okay? <laughs> Although that might explain the attraction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. man. She will have a lot of your... Um, Bright and sunny, <laughs> cheery, say, <laughs> cheery disposition. 
But um, she's definitely got a wicked edge to her. And uh, she's going to be capable of some stuff that, uh, let's just say that pe people are going to probably either love or despise her, depending on how they interpret her actions. Ooh. Okay, I know I'm intrigued now. Mm -hmm. It should be. I've I've read the meta arc for it. Mm -hmm. It should be really interesting. I'm got my fingers crossed, man, because you're you're aiming towards taking another leap in your craft, and yeah. I got my fingers and toes crossed that you make it. Because if you do, holy shit, is it going to be great? Yay! Um. So okay, Michael concludes. Hmm. Death threats. <laughs> oh God. Well, so far you've shown discomfort with using both natural and supernatural elements to fill gaps in stories. So, let's try this. <laughs> I shall invite you to dine with my little circle, only to ambush you and leave you tied to a chair while Angel Six whispers sweet nothings in your ear and Revenant Starbuck injects you full of midichlorians. After which, you will be showered with chroniton particles and transported to the TNG universe, where the Borg Queen, sans prostheses, will give you the lap dance of death, to the applause of half-human, half-Vulcans, half-human, half-Klingons, half-human, half-Betazoids, and in the final orgy of the Bacchanon, of the Bacantes. Bacchanalia? Bacantes. And in the final orgy of the Bacantes, half-human, half-Hortas. Enjoy. Ew, Michael. And that you think thesis? that means she's just like his really, head and spine. It's like at the end of, of, of it's the video. <laughs> Finish him, and you yes. rip out the spine. She's just the little That's spinal the cord dancing, kind of on. wiggling around. My, Michael, I think I read this fan fiction. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you would. It was a slash, wasn't it? <laughs> slash fic. Oh, absolutely, Michael. Anyone who writes a death threat like that has no business calling anything I write either degenerate or <laughs> depraved. So don't you dare. Oh, come on. At least you know he knows what he's talking about. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> he, and he did publish in the Marion Zimmer Bradley universe, so he knows degenerate mm. and depraved. Oh, oh snap! snap. <laughs> can I get a high five? <laughs> oh thank you so much for the email michael you're a great sport and you rock and your feedback is very valuable and oh, i yes. greatly appreciate it and very well written yes. yes that means you should charge for it next time <laughs> and we have one more death threat oh oh is this the final death threat final death threat i am going to kill you with paper cuts from playing card to the playing cards i think would be better this is can from... i just add punctuation yeah this okay. is from spirit who uh Okay. Yeah, it's from Shaded Spiriter, I think. Shaded Spiriter. All right, this is a death threat from Shaded Spiriter. I am going to kill you with paper cuts from playing cards to the eye for leaving that as the last scene. Oh. <laughs> well, Dan says, as oh, Ali said, it is going to be an interesting flight. <laughs> um. We're done with all the uh, feedback. Was there anything that uh, any parting thoughts that any of you guys had before? Yeah, there, and by the way, any feedback that the rest <laughs> of you send in from now on will still go on the feedback shows, but there won't be any more predestination specific feedback shows. Um, it'll be mixed in with uh, feedback shows for down from 10 or whatever else I'm doing at the time. Mm. 
But uh, as we wrap up this evening, which began with a toast and uh, <laughs> has been so much fun, um, and you guys who were both, all three of you who were so supportive through this whole book, uh, such major helps. Do any of you have parting thoughts on the whole adventure? Just that having heard the little tidbits of where this story is going, I can't wait for book two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to say thank you, Dan, for giving me my first um, taste of voice acting. And thank you so much. For I hope coming. I didn't let you down. Oh, and I, God, you rocked. <laughs> and I'm going to try really hard for the next endeavor you do. And just thanks. Oh, oh and Allie is not look... bad. She is misunderstood. Yes. She's not and bad. She's misunderstood. I think you should tell them all that you messed with my voice because I don't actually sound like she does <laughs> in the recording. It's all about equalization curves. Thank you so much for helping me. You were fabulous. Fabulous. No, you're fabulous. Oh. Meow. <laughs> <laughs> Kitty can always sum it up in a meow. Also, okay. it is like 12.30 now, and I am no. so... No, it's 1.30. Honey. It's 1.30? Yeah. It's one fucking 30. Oh, my God. It's one fucking 30. I am so, so OMFG. tired. <laughs> and we are so SOL for tomorrow. <laughs> I have, like, an hour drive home. <laughs> Guess who's not getting up early before uh, work to go on the treadmill? Yeah, really? <laughs> oh, well, oh, God. It's been such a great ride. All of you out there listening, you have made this incredible. Keep your eyes on the feed. There's special features coming. Teasers for Down from 10. Teasers for Free Will. The exit interview with T. Morris, which will actually probably drop before this does. Um, some carryover special features from recordings we did for the Metamore City podcast. Some other things we might get together and do here. And then the launch cast for Down from 10 with T. Morris and Ooh. Chris Lest. Oh boy. <laughs> it is going to be fabulous. And you should be getting stuff regularly every week or two in your feed between now and the start of the next book. Keep an eye on ReprobatesHour.com. The first, rep the first uh, episode of the new season of Reprobates Hour dropped last week, Ancient Science with Richard Carrier. If you've ever wondered what the ancients really knew and really invented, not the mystical version, but the version we actually have documented proof for, come take a listen. You are going to be astounded. The ancient world was a much more interesting place than we remember. And until... As I officially retire the phrase, it isn't until we begin the next book of the antithesis progression. Remember, what am I supposed to say? Oh yeah, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you break the game. That's right. It isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game. It's a growly. <laughs>